Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, is violence an inevitable part of human civilization? We've witnessed terrible scenes in Washington this week after supporters of US President Donald Trump stormed the Capitol building. The riot forced a suspension of a joint session of Congress, certifying Joe Biden's electoral victory. Clashes with police led to the deaths of four people and left many onlookers wondering how this could happen at the very heart of American democracy. In her new book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, Margaret Macmillan gives a sweeping historical perspective on violence, whether on foreign fields or closer to home. It seems, she says, to have been present during much of the greatest part of our human story. Well, how will the disturbing events of this week fit into that history? Macmillan is widely known for her books, Peacemakers and the War That Ended Peace, and questions the human motivation for fighting and the notion that peace is the default. Margaret Macmillan, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. Now, what did you make of the events in Washington, seen from a historical perspective in a week when there's been so much tumult, mob violence on the streets of Washington at the Capitol? I was absolutely stunned. Um, you know, we've seen such scenes elsewhere in the world. Um, I wasn't around when the Russian Revolution happened and I wasn't around when the French Revolution happened. But those revolutions had people storming parliament buildings, taking over palaces and trashing them. And we've seen upheavals in Washington before. I remember during the Vietnam War, there were demonstrations in Washington and there were times when the tear gas could be smelled apparently in the White House. But I never expected to see anything like this in Washington. I never expected to see the American capital occupied by people who came in apparently believing that an election had been stolen. I never thought I'd see it. And what is it like in terms of the broad sweep of history of this kind of uprising? And what is it not like? There are lots of comparisons flying about with coups, with insurrections. We should choose our words quite carefully. So you choose yours. I think I'd probably go for insurrection. I don't think it's a coup. Um, I think possibly Trump is trying to delay the handover of power. And so you could say that Trump is trying to carry out some sort of coup, but it's inept and not terribly coherent. I mean, normally in a coup, you get people very targeted and going over and taking over government radio stations in the old days or, or today taking over social media, um, taking over the institutions that are important for governments. And I didn't get the impression that this was anything of the sort. I mean, when I looked at the people who got into the Capitol building, they didn't actually seem to know what to do once they were there. Um, the, the purpose was to get in. And then they sort of wandered around taking selfies of themselves and sending pictures of themselves to their families. And so I think it was more a mob violence, although clearly there was some planning there. I think. And there was certainly encouragement 
from the president himself, who had been talking on social media even before these people came to Washington, saying, come to Washington, it's going to be wild. And then in his speech yesterday to the assembled crowds, had urged them to go down Pennsylvania Avenue and put pressure on Congress. And so it's an odd combination of, of mob violence, but with a certain amount of organization and a certain amount of direction from the very person who should have been trying to stop it. You range very broadly in what we're about to talk about your book about warfare, but are you clear where the borderline is between acts of random, if encouraged, violence like this and civil strife, even before we get to talking about warfare? It's always slightly blurred, but I think I would make the distinction between random violence and, and disorganised violence, which may have a purpose and may not. I mean, it seemed to me that, that the purpose yesterday was to somehow disrupt the process in Congress, but I'm not sure there was much purpose beyond that. And I would see war as something that is highly organised, and I define it as one organised group using violence against another organised group, and both have a purpose in mind, um, a political purpose, some sort of ideology, some sort of reason why they're fighting. And so I think you can slide from what we saw yesterday into something more organized, into something more like an organized civil war. And we've seen this happen before, sort of low-level random violence um, or perhaps partly directed violence in places like Yugoslavia, which then turned into a fallout raging civil war. And so the border is not very clear, but war, it seems to me, is much more organized and much more purposive. It's interesting you mentioned uh, those sporadic acts of, of violence in the dissolution of Yugoslavia, which was a story that I covered at the time, which then turned into something bigger. But it struck me, and I don't know if you're going to agree with this, that there's an almost performative aspect, a copycat or mimetic aspect to what, what we've seen. And it reminded me a bit of the storming of the Stasi headquarters in Berlin after the 1989 genuine peaceful revolution. People got there and then couldn't quite quite figure out what to do and ended up sort of looking around the canteen. Yeah, well, I think what happened yesterday, I mean, clearly the Capitol is an enormously important symbol. It, along with the White House, really symbolise the, the power of the American federal government. But I agree. I mean, I think what struck me yesterday is that a lot of the people there were behaving as if they were in some sort of reality TV show. Um, you know, they got there. They were there, you know, look at me. And, and they were clearly, I mean, so many of them had phones in their hands. I don't know if you noticed that. And they were either taking selfies. Some had selfie sticks. And goodness knows what else they had in their backpacks. I suspect guns and, and and indeed, I think they have found some guns. It seemed to me that they had sort of achieved their object and they hadn't really thought beyond that. Now, what we don't know and what may come out in the next few days and, and weeks is whether there were organised elements among them. Let's put this all in a much broader context of strife, of war and violence. Your new book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us. It's a history of war, as it indicates. But I'm interested at what point you could possibly begin because I thought this was something that had always been with the human condition. We have been fighting each other for at least 12,000 years, possibly more. Um, early evidence of settlements shows walls and you don't put up walls usually unless you have something to defend yourself against and that something is probably not just wild animals, it was probably human beings as well. As far as we can tell, once we settled down particularly and became agriculturalists, we grew bigger organized societies, we had more to lose, we had more to take. Even before we settled down when we were hunter-foragers, there were probably sporadic flarings up of violence. But the further back we go, of course, the more difficult it is to find any evidence. 
And which wars would you say have been most significant in changing the world? If we take, first of all, that very long, broad sweep of history before we come towards our modern societies. The Egyptian Empire was built partly by war and maintained partly by war. The Roman Empire was built partly by war and maintained by war. And both those empires have left a huge imprint on history. And I think we can look at particular wars and say, you know, if it had gone a different way, we might have had a different unfolding of the past. So, for example, if the Mongol hordes had swept over Central Europe, as they came very close to doing, then we might have had a Europe which had a very different history, very different culture. Or if the Ottoman Empire later on had conquered the heart of Europe, I mean, they were outside Vienna a couple of times, if they had conquered the heart of Europe, then Europe might have been a more Muslim society. And so there are times I think you can look at past wars and say they really did leave an imprint or change the direction in which societies were going. And when we talk about the wars of the 20th century, to bring us up to date somewhat, what you call total war, as being when we first start to see hugely significant numbers of deaths. But I was quite curious about that because I thought, how do you compare that with times when warfare was, yes, smaller scale and technology was limited in how many people you could kill in one go, but nonetheless had massive impacts on their societies? I'm thinking about something like the Thirty Years' War in Europe. The Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, which lasted from 1618 to 1648, was a war that ravaged large parts of Europe. It left a terrible toll. I mean, some German cities like Magdeburg were virtually depopulated, and it's been estimated that in parts of Europe where the war was particularly ferocious, something like 30 to 40, maybe even 50% of the population was killed or died of the consequences of war from starvation or disease. I think why we talk about total war in the 20th century, and we actually, I think, had to come up with a term for it. It was not a term that had been used before the 20th century. We talked about total war partly because it was so massive, thanks to industrialization and improved communications. And so whereas in the 30 Years War, if you were lucky, you might live in a town that would be spared because the troops simply went another way. In the First and Second World Wars, there was no escaping. The bomber would get through, particularly in the Second World War. But I think total war also drew in the resources, the energies, the intellectual abilities, the research of societies in a way that even previous wars had not done. And so it was a war that was both total in, in the number of deaths, total in the expanse, total often in the aims, because the aims tended to expand as, as the war went on, and total in the way in which it drew in so many different parts of society and affected so many different parts of society. And this personal sense of connection that you have to wars comes from your grandfathers, I think, who served as doctors during the First World War. How formative was that in your course as a historian of warfare? As a child, I heard stories. Um, both my grandfathers, a Canadian one and a British one, were in the First World War as doctors. And we had as children things that they had brought back from war. We had a hand grenade that my Canadian grandfather had brought back, um, which we played with until someone realized that perhaps it was still live and it was removed from us. So we had those sort of memories. They didn't talk much about it. I mean, I think it was quite often the case that people didn't really want to talk about it. But my father and, and several of my uncles were in the Second World War. And again, there were sort of things that they had brought back from war. They would tell us stories, usually funny stories, because I think they, they just really didn't want to talk about the very difficult and painful times. So it was something that was simply there in, in, in the background when I was growing up. And when you thought about how you wanted to pursue your own academic career, how much did you think, well, I want to understand a world in which my 
grandparents could find themselves serving as, as doctors in a time of unimaginable destruction. I think we still find it quite hard to grasp the First World War. I think we do, and, and, and the Second World War too. It, it, and the Second World War is interesting, well, not interesting, but horrible, because people died on a huge scale, but more, far more civilians died in the Second World War than died in the First World War. I think I was always interested in war, and, and possibly I was discouraged from being so, not by my family, certainly, but at university there was a slight feeling that girls didn't study war, which probably made me the more determined to study it. Um, I always found military history interesting. And what's happened with the history of war is, is that it's become quite different from what it used to be. I mean, it used to be perhaps more focused on battles and, and regiments and, and supplies, logistics and so on. The history of war now is really the history of societies and war. And since I think, and I, th I think it's evident, war is a hugely formative part of what makes societies what they are, I think if you want to know how the past has developed, how it's turned out, how the present has become what it is, you have to take war into account. There's one way which I think that you're slightly counter a lot of the trends in commemoration of warfare. And it's particularly, I noticed it in a, a chapter that you call fighting, in which you talk about the enjoyment of warfare by many of those involved in it. And I think it's an interesting time to discuss this because it goes a bit counter to those grand commemorations of World War One, which seem to work to the narrative of this is terrible, ordinary people got sucked into it, the death toll was monstrous and, and therefore it's all a grand blunder. But you seem to suggest that there is an interest and indeed a drive in people towards fighting, towards warfare. We have to admit, if we're going to look at war and if we're going to try and work out how it happens and, and if we're going to try and work out ways that we might want to stop it, I think we have to understand what I call the glamour of war. I mean, there are those who find war exhilarating and it's a very uncomfortable thing to talk about. But if you go back into the memoirs and if you look at some of the great works of literature like the Iliad, war is seen there as horrible, but it's also seen as something that's glorious and it's seen as, as a way in which people test themselves and, and the ways in which values like courage are worked out. And I think there is an interest in that side of war. In the movies, if you go into bookshops, there, there are a great many books on war, even in video games, um, which are about war. And if you talk to soldiers, as I've done, they will sometimes say, you know, look, it was terrible and I was frightened. But there were moments of sheer exhilaration would be the wrong word. But there were moments, very intense moments when life seemed very precious if you know you might be about to die, there is something that intensifies everything. Not that people want to go back and get that experience, but there is something in war which, which does bring out the most intense of human emotions. It's a, a, a line I remember in Coriolanus, which is the most martial of Shakespeare's plays, of course, and one of the ordinary folk commenting on whether there should be another war or not says, give me war, I say, it's better than peace, as night is better than the day. Peace is a very lethargy. And there is something interesting about that, isn't there, that as we look at whether we feel that we're growing as societies away from that sort of view, there is still an attraction. But I wondered whether it's, it's an attraction to the glories of the military tradition rather than to the actual fighting. I wonder if it's both. I think there is an attraction that in danger. You know, why otherwise do people hurtle down mountains on skis at, at very high speeds? Why do people race motorcycles? I once was talking to a Canadian general, very distinguished, and he'd done a lot of peacekeeping like a lot of Canadian armed forces have since the Second World War. And I was interviewing him for something. And when I turned off my tape recorder, he said, I would never say this on record, 
But he said there is something exhilarating in war when you know you might die. He said it is like riding a fast motorcycle. Um, but he said, I won't say that publicly. And would your grandfathers, do you think, share that view, having seen the carnage, the suffering up close? No, I don't think they would. And in fact, my, my British grandfather, who came from Wales, was at Gallipoli, and he was told to get all the men down to be evacuated, the wounded men, and he laid them on the beach to get them evacuated. I only heard this story years later from my mother. And he said to them, look, um, he was told to get on the boat and leave, and he said to them, they're, they're coming back for you. And no one came back for them. And a week later, they found they'd all died on the beach. And I think he was haunted by it for the rest of his life. When we talk about war being alluring or about the fact that there is an attraction for it, I wonder how much also we factor in the experience of civilians along the way. And if you're looking at something which is admittedly at sort of, of the, the extremes of where civilians are basically become combatants uh, against their will and without being volunteers, you could look at something, for instance, like Germany after 1945, you know, up to two million women estimated to have been raped by the advance of the Red Army. So that does rather kind of offset the, the picture of, of, of war as exhilaration, doesn't it? it, it it's a war that is then visited on those who are not opting to be in it. Yes, and it's something we often forget about in war is just what happens to civilians. I think too often in histories of war, we focus on the battles and those who are fighting. But I think we always need to remember what happens to those who are caught up in war through no choice often of their own and what can happen to them and what happened to German women and Polish women and, and women generally across the centre of Europe as the Soviet troops advanced was truly appalling and I think made more appalling because nobody would talk about it for so long and so the women, as so, so often happens, were made to feel ashamed of themselves for having been raped and, and there were sort of all sorts of nasty jokes about how German women um, immediately surrendered to foreign soldiers uh, while the German brave men kept fighting on. I mean, it, it is something I think we, we need to acknowledge and we need to understand much more. Are you clear in your own mind, I mean, I spent a lot of time living in Germany, particularly Eastern Germany, so a lot of families had, as you say, had that experience in the background or had moved or fled in, ahead of the advance of of the Red Army, and it was not very much discussed. And is still, I think, a, a slightly touchy subject. Are you clear how rape as a weapon of war is specific to a particular situation? And there it is, of the immense suffering of the Soviet Union, but also, frankly, the sort of directorship of Stalin along the lines of you can do what you like. And how much of it persists as just one of the big collateral effects of warfare? We talk a lot more about rape as a weapon of war now, and I wonder where you, how, where you feel it fits in the picture. I think rape is both a collateral effect. So often what happens, either the officers let their men run out of control or they can't control them, and it's always a problem for, for the military. I mean, they train their people to be killers, but they don't want them to be undisciplined killers. But there's always a danger that those in combat or coming out of combat will run out of control. And sometimes the officers encourage it. I mean, I came across a French officer in Algeria who said, you know, feel free to rape the women, but just don't let anyone find you doing it. And I think Stalin made that infamous remark. Well, you know, when someone raised the issue of rape with him, he said, look, they've fought their way across Europe um, of the Soviet soldiers. They deserve a bit of fun. And so I think you will get um, armies either unable or not bothering to control their men. What we also know is that the military or some military will use rape as a weapon to weaken civilian morale on the other side so the other side will surrender. 
and that happened in Bosnia, for example, in the 1990s, where Serb nationalist forces rounded up Bosnian Muslim women, put them in camps where they were basically there to, to service the Serbian nationalist soldiers, and often raped them publicly, and said to them things such as, you will now bear Serbian children. And that was a very deliberate attempt to destroy Bosnian Muslim society and, and to, to, to make that society incapable of fighting on. And so rape has a long and inglorious history in war, and, and alas, it is still very much with us. And the broad sweep of your account is that war has been with us for a very long time indeed, and that relatively few periods, at least somewhere in the world where it hasn't been with us. But does that mean that it's an essential part of being human? Is that the same thing? I very much hope not, but it has been a part of being human in many societies and for a very long time. But I think the reason we fight is not biological. I mean, there's a huge argument about this, and I don't think we fight as a result of what evolution has done to us. We may have aggressive tendencies, but war is enormously controlled. And often, most of the time, if you want to make people into people who will fight, you have to give them an awful lot of training. But I think war is, is much more determined by culture. And I think you can get cultures change. Um, Swedish soldiers in the Thirty Years' War, for example, were seen with absolute horror. They were savage. They, you, you wanted to get out of the way if you knew they were coming in your direction. They were ruthless. They were dreadful. They put men, women, and children to the sword. They looted tombs, stripped things off corpses. I mean, they were really awful. And look at Sweden today. You know, it's a country whose culture has changed, and, and the Swedes are now pacifists, a lot of them, great peacekeepers. And so I think culture determines often how people fight. So it's not part of human nature that we fight. It's because our societies organize themselves to fight, um, in some cases promote martial virtues. And I think it's also because organized states often will see war as an instrument they can use. And that's, of course, often why we go to war, because someone thinks it's a good idea, they're going to get something they want out of it. Have you changed your mind about aspects of conflict or indeed about the merits or demerits of any of the major wars that you've written about? Where I really changed my mind, I think, as, as I read, was on this issue of, of the civilians. Um, I tended, like many people who, who study war, to look at the battles and look at how nations organized themselves for wars or, or look at why civil wars started. But more and more I became interested in the role of civilians, both as we've talked about how, how they are victims of war, but also how they can participate in war. I mean, modern wars really wouldn't have worked in the 20th century without the civilians producing the materials that were needed for war without civilians continuing to work, um, continuing to man the factories, the offices, the railways, the steamships. And also, I think, you will find that civilians can sometimes be cheerleaders for war. You know, you think of the women who went around in countries like Canada and Britain, Australia, the United States with white feathers in the First World War to shame men of military age who are not in uniform. And so the role of civilians is something I became much more interested in because it seems to me it's, it's a role with many, many facets. Well, do you think that the violence that we've seen in Washington now will make the US involvement in broader conflicts more likely, perhaps the other way around? I don't think the two are related. I think what's happening in the United States is an internal problem. And I think the danger there is this low-level randomized violence and, and mob 
activity could turn into something more organized. I mean, what I find worrying in the United States before this even is the appearance of people wearing military uniforms, marching in military style units. And that seems to me worrying because it's the sort of thing you get in other countries that have eventually gone downhill into civil war. But if anything, I would have thought its internal troubles and its internal divisions will make the U.S. very reluctant about getting involved in major foreign policy adventures, and particularly getting involved in wars, because if a democracy is not united when it goes to war, we know that it's very difficult for it to fight that war. And I think the experience of Vietnam taught the Americans a very profound lesson that unless the public is behind you, you shouldn't go to war, particularly if it's going to be a long and difficult war. You talk about the attitude of the West experiencing a long peace, that is a substantial period without war at home. And you write in the book, we're confident that we ourselves will never have to take part in war. Do you think that was complacency? I'd call it complacency. And it seems to me very like what happened in Europe before 1914. Europe had had, for its long and bloody history, a very long period of peace in the 19th century with a couple of wars, but nothing on a major scale. And I think the Europeans had got used to the idea that they were simply too civilized and too advanced to ever go to war again, that war was something other, less civilized. I and mean, those were the words they used, less civilized peoples used. And they got themselves into war, I think, without fully appreciating the dangerous possibilities that they were flirting with. And I think we may be in the same situation. I mean, we tend to assume that war is something that happens in Africa, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, um, in parts of Asia, but not something that we do. And my argument always is that others have thought this in the past and it can be dangerous. You started your book with a quote, war remains, as it always has been, one of the chief human mysteries. That's from a Belarusian journalist and historian, Svetlana Alexievich. How far do you think you got in unravelling the mystery? Perhaps a little bit of the way, but I don't think I will ever really understand what it's like to be in war. You think of writers from Homer to Tolstoy to Tim O'Brien, who, who wrote so wonderfully about the Vietnam War, have tried to get at the mystery of war and, and why it is this extraordinary phenomenon and what people feel when they're in war. And as Tim O'Brien said, some of, when you try and explain it, you're not explaining it. I'm not quoting him properly, but he says it's something that will always escape you because as soon as you try and pin it down, then it eludes you. So I'm not sure I'll ever understand that. Perhaps it's not something that can be put into words or music or film. But I think I understand more about the impact of war on our societies, the ways in which it's shaped government, the ways in which it's shaped attitudes, the ways in which it has shaped social values. I think I have a better sense now of the way in which war is interwoven into so much of human history. Margaret McMillan, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Well, after that tumultuous week, does hearing Margaret Macmillan's analysis of events in Washington make you more or less hopeful for peace where you live? And is this a dreadful blip for the United States or perhaps a harbinger of more strife to come? Do you have your own memories of historic wars or memories passed down in your family like Margaret Macmillan's grandfather's there who spiked her own interest in military history? On this subject particularly, we would really like to hear your experiences or anything from the store of memory in your family. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet me at economistradio. For your best introductory offer to all of our coverage, 
do go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.